hold on one second. I just realized I did a thing and then I didn't put all the details in here. Give me one second here. Yeah, of course. I'm going to put on my air conditioner while you do that. It is so hot. There is a party of lizards in my office today. Do they come out with hot? Is that thing that come out? They can be. Oh my god, there are six or seven over here, and I can't close my door because they're crawling all over my door. <laughs> Hello, this is Maureen, and Melissa will join us in just a moment. I wanted to take a moment to thank you or the algorithm for selecting us for your listening pleasure. Our podcast is called Ret Connection because we love a portmanteau. We thought that title explained what we wanted to do, which is connect with you over those TV shows that we loved, we felt invested in, but did or did not end the way that we wanted. To round out the conversation, we'll talk about TV nostalgia, how we watch then versus how we watch now, the psychology of storytelling, and of course, the long, weird, and beautiful history of fan fiction. We hope you enjoy. Uh-oh, I've got a ghost coming in. The Shout. Halloween episode. episode. Yeah. <laughs> The other night, Moya was scrolling through something on the Roku and said, hey, this says ghost story and horror. What does that mean? What she was asking was, is there blood and guts in it? Hmm. But I had to pause. Normally when I hear horror, I think blood and guts. I think some kind of gore. Mm -hmm. But not always. The... There are many films and television shows categorized as horror that are strictly horror of the mind kind of shows. I I don't know. I think it was a good, it opened up a debate in my brain. What Mm -hmm. is horror? What is horror? This is not my world. I don't like horror shows or movies. I don't even like to watch a trailer preview, that sort of thing. It just, if it's outright scary, I don't like it. But I do like a good thriller especially if the writing is really good. For me, thriller is scary and suspenseful and there's some kind of mystery to solve. But horror to me is just purely to scare you. And there is probably some level of gore. So a thriller has horror elements, but not every horror film has the thriller elements. Okay, that makes sense. You sent me a list of, was it Rolling Stone? Yeah, Rolling Stone had a list of best, TV horror shows of all time. This was from 2021. So I was looking at that list and there were many I had not watched, but some of the shows on there obviously are clearly horror, like Ash versus Evil Dead. I have watched that because it's very funny and campy. That's the kind of horror I can handle usually if there's a a comedy element to it. It's not just scary to be, just scared the shit out of me. Some of the Shows on that list I would not consider to be horror. For example, they had True Detective on there. Yeah, I thought that was weird. I think the reason why they put it on there is because it dealt with the occult. And so maybe it's this supernatural horror thing. And there was, but uh, that didn't make sense to me because True Detective is a crime drama. Right, right. 
definitely wouldn't have put that in that that category. Also, Twin Peaks was on the list. Now, that's just a sideways fever dream. That's a whole different conversation, maybe an entire episode. But I also don't think that's a horror. That's There's some supernatural stuff in there, but I wouldn't put that on that list. Also, Stranger Things was on there. I didn't... That one I'm torn about. The last season was so scary. It was much more grisly, too. The way that that the characters are killed in the last season was... I couldn't watch that one by myself. But I don't think up until the final season, I would have considered a horror. I definitely would have put it in the sci-fi. Yeah. Hey, 80s nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Fantasy. I agree. But I think if all the seasons had been as gory and scary as the most recent season, I think maybe I would have. They all have been quite creepy and spooky and not something you want to watch by yourself at night, at least me, because I'm chicken. But the season with, I can't remember his name now, but uh, the really scary monster guy. Don't say it too many times, I think. (laughs) When I think of horror, I think of something that you're choosing purposely to scare yourself. I don't know if I'd say Haunting of Hill House was horror. Because what I loved about that series was, now it was, it was, of course, clear by the end. But for most of the series, it was like, is this haunting or is it just a fucked up family? So many people have recommended it. Still the best one. We got yeah. two episodes or three, two episodes into Follow the House of Usher. Some very effective, spooky, creepy, gross elements to it. Mm-hmm. But Haunting of Hell House is still number one. Some of the scariest stuff I've ever seen was not gory. It was not. Yeah. It wasn't gratuitous blood and guts. It was. Yeah. It was, it's mind fucks. I was going to make a dad joke. Okay. Because of Halloween, we're choosing scary shows today. But the scariest thing is you'll hear us both without our high school friend. <laughs> I, I mentioned it myself. Yeah, same brain. Uh, different zip code. <laughs> mine that I felt that was a little too short was Black Spot, which in France was called Zone Blanche, which means white zone. So I don't know why they called it Black Spot. <laughs> In English, it's a police procedural set in a small French village, but also it has supernatural elements and it also has a lot of these pagan rituals connected to the, the, the nature that they're surrounded by. The black spot being this forest, they talk a lot about having bad reception on their cell phones and things like that because mm-hmm. of how remote the place is. It ran for two seasons, 2017 to 2019. It was originally produced by a Belgian channel, RTBF, in Brussels. Amazon is actually the one that bought it, and it was the first French dialogue show that they bought. Oh, interesting. And then you can watch both seasons now on Netflix. The creator, executive producer... Matthew Mizel, a cast of weird weirdos coming to this little town where the premise is that there are far too many murders for 
the size of this town, which is a convention we see often, or we overlook it when it's something like Murder, She Wrote. Or, Why is every time Angela Lansbury goes somewhere, somebody gets murdered? <laughs> they send an inspector to see what's going on in this town, what's wrong with these cops. There is the procedural element, which is there's always a crime to solve in each episode. But the thing that I think they do really well that a lot of shows aren't able to do quite as well is that background mystery that stretches over the seasons, which is this element of nature being involved in some of the more sinister things going on. There's a cult of Cyrenos, the horned god, people participating in different rites and rituals. They're finding these creepy artifacts at crime scenes, but they may or may not be related to the crime. The, the dark and brooding detective and all of her fucked up relationships and all of those things that add a richness to that procedural format, I think. The thing that I, I wish they would have tied up was there was a connection between the detective. It's uncovered. She was kept prisoner in the woods when she was a child. And you start to see the connection between her and this god of nature, or at least creature of nature, where you think that she's in peril, but you realize by the end of season two that he's actually been protecting her. So without a season three, that mystery didn't get tied up. All the that broader, creepier, darker mystery, those are the things where when you really draw storytellers, you want to see them finish the story. You don't yes. want to think about, oh, maybe this happened, maybe that happened. I wonder where they were going with that. I still regard it as a good show and I would recommend that people watch it, but there's that lingering, I wonder where they were going with that. It just ended in 2019. I would still go back and watch it if they decided to do a third season and wrap things up, which I'm an advocate for. That would be, yeah, I remember that one feeling the ending felt a little bit rushed. That was, I think, one of the first shows that I binged in two days. I also, there were very funny elements in that one as well. It had yeah. some, the detective. Oh gosh, which, yeah. That was, I like that. I like that it had some balance of the light and the dark. It went way dark. It went absurd and then it went way dark. It definitely got the atmospheric stuff right. Really cool contrast and tone. Let's talk about the first time you saw something scary and unexplainable on the TV and it gave you nightmare fuel. There are certain things that just bring me just a sense of abject horror, no matter when or where or how. And I think it all starts, as my family tells it, when I was about two years old, there was a movie trailer that would make me scream and cry when it came on. It was a movie called Magic. And it was a ventriloquist dummy that was evil or something. Honestly, I don't even want to know. I have not had the wherewithal to do research beyond that. I don't like animatronic stuff. I don't like marionette puppets. I don't like any of that. Sure. But one of the things that was not actually scary, but scary to me, was there was a show on in 70s or 80s called Thunderbirds. Huh? Now, here's the thing. I had to dig a little bit, not look at any of the pictures. But I had to dig a little bit. This was originally a BBC show. 
I can't figure out how I would have watched it unless it ran on PBS because in, in all of my research, there's nothing about that it aired in the U.S. when I was a kid. But anyhow, I remember it clearly. I remember it being scary. It's the, they're the uh, super marionation style of puppetry. That's what inspired Trey Parker and Matt Stone's Team America, which I have still never seen and I will never see. I don't care how good it is. When I looked up the Thunderbirds, because I never have seen it, that was the first thing I thought of, Team America. I didn't realize they were referential. Yeah. I hate it when they try to make puppets handsome. I think that's the part that's creepy is they look close enough to people that if you were in a, a whole a house all by yourself at night and it was in the dark and you saw that thing either just sitting on a shelf or worst case scenario walking towards you that's hor- that is horror there's yeah. no guard there that is horror the puppets in the land of confusion video oh, no. referenced by people our age the muppet ones were specific to whatever the sketch was there was a clear line where his stuff was very sweet and cuddly and childlike and obviously the stuff that was scary monster stuff though i think it was linda carter saying rubber band man and they had these little rubber band puppets and they i just got chilled actually talking about it tales from the dark side which was really popular when we were kids there was one episode there's this scary little demon girl with no skin and weird hair she's got no hair but little wispies she lives in this closet People come and stay at the house for some reason. And she comes out and eats them. Attacks them. She lives in the, it's a little door, a short door. So I do not, every time I see those in a real house, I run past them. Or in a movie, I'm like, don't trust that door. Oh, dear. Whatever New York station we got, they would play Grease every other weekend. But they would advertise The Shining during Grease. And I remember the blood coming out of the elevator. I know I'm not alone in this, but to this day, if I'm in a hotel hallway by myself, I just, the hair goes up on the back of my neck. Oh, yeah. Those are really strong visuals. Yeah, it's, you just expect the twins to walk out. The show that I believe went too long is called Le Revenant, which means The Returned. It's a French show with subtitles. I watched it on Amazon Prime, but it originally premiered on Canal Plus, which is a French cable network. This show ran from 2015. There were two seasons. Sorry, and my apologies to all these actors because I took two years of French class 29 years ago. In Cosini, Frederick Pierrot, Clotilde Hesme, Celine Saleh. I'm going to stop there and not embarrass myself any further. This is a supernatural horror drama about people returning from the dead, but it's not your average flesh-eating zombie show. I started watching a show on Netflix called Glitch. It's an Australian program that ran from 2015 to 2016. Because I'm a nerd, I always like to read about the shows that I'm watching. I started to dig in and I learned that Glitch was inspired by a French show called Le Revenant, which was also inspired by a 2004 French film called They Came Back or Le Revenant. There was also an American adaptation of Le Revenant called The Return, and it was on A&E for one season in 2015. I started to lose interest in Glitch. I liked it at first, but it was off the rails, and I wanted to dig into the original source material. I'm really glad I did. 
you know that I love Dark on Netflix. It's one of my most favorite things I've ever watched in the history of ever watching anything. This show is as close to Dark as I've ever seen anything be. I can't put my finger on what is reminiscent about it, but it's, I think it's a combination of the setting, the cinematography, the music. It all just contributes to the overall tone, but I immediately liked it. This is not just a show about dead people that return. It's about the families that are left behind. It's about their grief and how their grieving process starts all over again when their loved ones come back. A lot of these people have moved on. They've remarried. They've had children, other children. And in some cases, the people who are returning come back to those people have died too. So the show begins in a small French mountain town with a bus crash. There's a group of teenagers who are on a class field trip and the bus very suddenly plunges over the side of a cliff into a reservoir below. You're not quite sure how much time has passed, but the very next scene, you see a young girl named Camille and she's climbing up the side of a hill. She is unscathed and she looks like she somehow dodged all the injury in the crash. She walks the very long way back to her home and goes in the door and she's starving and she goes right to the fridge for a snack like a lot of teenagers would do. Her mom hears a noise. She comes downstairs and she's just gone to see her daughter there. Camille, the teenager, is thinking that she just, she somehow got lost on this trip. She got separated from the rest of her group. She doesn't have a memory. She feels weird, but she doesn't know what happened. And she thinks all of that happened that morning. But in reality, she's been gone for four years. Her parents are no longer together. Her mom has to call her dad at his house to come over and say this. You, you won't believe what, what's happened. Soon after, she's seeing more people returning. First of all, I thought if all the kids from the bus crash are coming back. But it's all different ages of people. So I thought, oh, it's teachers and chaperones. You don't piece together immediately that these people are all returning from different times and different deaths. There's a young man named Simon who died 10 years prior. And there's a small boy named Victor and a woman named Madame Costa. And they died around the same time, 34 years prior. All of the return people seem to have died in a traumatic way. Camille's bus crash. Simon committed suicide on the day of his wedding. The little boy Victor and his mother and brother were victims of a home invasion. Madame Costa fell through the ice in the frozen reservoir. Meanwhile, at the local reservoir, the water level keeps dropping and it reveals all these dead animals are turning up. And there's a church steeple that you can see when the water level goes down, which is from when the dam broke 35 years prior and the town flooded. There is what they believe a copycat murder from seven years before, but in reality, it's the return of a serial killer because why would only good people come back? Bad people would return as well. Camille's parents try to leave town to keep her safe, but the road out of town just ends in the woods and they can't get out. Victor wanders around town and he follows a nurse named Julie home and she takes him in and protects him. She also tries to leave town with Victor, Julie does, and the same thing happens. So you are realizing the returned, the revenant can't leave. It starts to get out to the greater population that this is happening. There's a large group of the return that is just hell-bent on getting all of the revenants together. And you don't understand what their purpose for that is, but they're very scary and intimidating of everyone else. The season finale of season one, there was a big standoff between the returned people and the families who've been hiding them or protecting them. They've been staying at a local shelter that's up on the hill above town. The bad return group demands that all the other return join them. 
and they're not budging on this. Uh, it's very much like there's something bad that's going to happen. We need to protect ourselves. The next thing you hear is there's a big shootout with the local authorities. But the next day, they, they come out of the shelter. They raise up the doors and the windows. There's no evidence that there was a shootout. There's nothing left over. There's no bodies. There's nothing. They walk out and the town is flooded again because the dam broke, just like it did 35 years earlier. Obviously, that's somehow connected. You don't understand why. It, it seems silly to talk about a show that was too long when there were only two seasons. Each season consisted of eight hour-long episodes, so 16 hours of television. In the hands of another network, they may have had condensed episodes or additional seasons. May, they may have stretched it out. Season one was so strong and so good and so ominous and creepy and sad. And season two, it's very slow, it's meandering. They introduce all these new characters and it's hard to keep track of them and follow the plot threads. And you don't understand which ones have any bearing on the overall story arc. As a viewer, you're hoping they're going to tie things up and they sometimes tie things up. There's other things they left hanging. I loved season one so much. It was so beautiful. It was so deeply connected to this sense of grief and people's feelings about losing family and seeing them and the emotional roller coaster that must have been. And season two, there's a lot of unnecessary story fat. I think that they could have cut half of that show in this half of season two and made it more concise and clear because I think it takes away from how beautiful season one was. I still think it's worth a watch. I just think that season two is chaos. I still love it. I tried both the Australian and the American versions of this show. I didn't know there was a French version that it was based on. I think I almost prefer a show getting canceled abruptly that's well done. Mm -hmm. And the show that so obviously goes, okay, we had a great season one. If we can just fatten up this season two, yeah. they wouldn't give another season. And no real story propulsion for that. Yeah. I feel it would be important to go back and watch the movie, which, which maybe some of the things that they didn't address here cover. Yeah. To see if it makes things any clearer, if it is similar. Yeah, I'd be curious, too. I think after hearing what you just said, I probably would watch the movie first. Usually around Halloween, I'll subscribe to Shudder for a month, <laughs> get my fill, and then subscribe. A couple of years ago went on, and they had the whole anthology of a show called Channel Zero. The thing that I like about anthology shows is that if a certain season is great and if another one sucks, you can just take the ones that you like. And the first season called Candle Cove is one of the scariest things I've ever seen in my life. Mm. The third season is bloody, disgusting, gory. So the seasons one and three were excellent. Seasons two and four, can't even remember them hardly. Horror can do the self-contained stories and tends to do those a little bit more than other genres. Creepshow, they've restarted Creepshow on Shudder. See, Joe Hill, Stephen King's son, is creator of that. Those are have been really good. Twilight Zone, of course, the gold standard. Did you watch Cabinet of Curiosities? Some of them. Yeah, again, some were better than others. You're going to talk about Lovecraft Country. 
the one that was based on the Lovecraft short story with Crispin Glover. Another person who was just scary by being himself. Haunts my dreams. (laughs) One, I believe this would be considered an anthology, even though it didn't have as much time to to do its thing because it wasn't renewed, but uh, Castle Rock, actually. And that's the whole Stephen King mythology backstory of all his, and it's, the first season establishes there's all these Easter eggs for people who love his books and movies. There's references to Shawshank. And the second season is more about Annie from Misery and how, and obviously story parts of those stories that didn't happen, but it's their greater, the greater Stephen King universe. It's scary, but not terrifyingly so. The storytelling was good. And there were so many good people. Melanie Linsky is in season one. So see SpaceX is in season one. Who is the younger Skarsgård brother? He's in the first one. And he's also in, obviously he's in It, in the movie. Right. He plays a super creepy character. And uh, season two had Lizzie Kaplan. It's still a little campy. So I think that's what made it work. And it wasn't very scary, but I wish that would have had a third season because that was fun. That was a good, scary, fun watch, but not not jump scares and gore, just like cerebral. I don't know if I've ever read a Stephen King novel, but some of my favorite films and TV shows, Mr. Mercedes, the recent The Stand, The Outsider, which was on HBO, were some of my favorite miniseries or limited series, we call them now. So over the last uh, few years, he just, yeah, he's got a... Beautiful, scary mind. Fun show. I think it was very well wrapped up. Called Winona Earp. The actress who played... Winona Earp's mother. And I was like, oh, I gotta tell Melissa. And then I don't remember. <laughs> Megan Follows plays Winona Earp's no mother. Way. And, she, and she's like a alcoholic, dark, you know, no really, like, been through the ringer kind of. That was, it was a well. very Canadian show. Canadian. I love that. And I yeah. love her. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it makes me want to watch really. it even more now. It had four seasons. It started in 2016 on a regional Halifax station. And Viacom purchased it, broadcast it on Spike. Then it moved from Spike to Sci-Fi. It ended on Sci-Fi after four seasons. You can watch it all on Netflix right now. It is created and executive produced by Emily Andrus, based on the comic by Bo Smith. Winona Herb begins with Winona returning to her hometown called Purgatory for the funeral of her uncle, who took care of her when her father died in a supernatural situation. She's definitely the reluctant hero. She doesn't want to be there. She has a lot of problems with everybody. Everybody's got a lot of problems with her. But she had this obligation to come back and pay her respects. Also, while she's there, she wants to convince her sister to leave purgatory. So it's after the funeral. She's looking for her sister. And she's approached by Deputy Xavier Dolls, played by Shamir Anderson, who is a special agent from some government bureau. He's talking to Winona about needing her help with figuring out what's going on in purgatory. This is the first time we realize not just that this is a town that has bad memories and maybe it's not a great 
place to prosper, but there's something weird going on. Winona tracks down her sister, Waverly. Shortly thereafter, Waverly is in peril. Winona has to save her. She does this by using Wyatt Earp's revolver called Peacemaker. Basically, without the gun, Winona is powerless. Without Winona, the gun is powerless. They need each other, and a lot of the peril has to do with them being separated. The bad guys know that you need the gun. And in that way, it's a procedural because each episode is about a specific ghoulie or goblin or ghost or cursed object that needs to be dispatched by Winona, by Peacemaker, in order to remove the curse on the town and on the Earp family. These so-called revenants, who were the bad guys that Wyatt Earp shot, back in the day, but also a collection of other nefarious creatures who have been attracted to this town due to the demon energy there. So it's like a big demon party. (laughs) Tim Rosan plays Doc Holliday, who at this point is like 170 years old. I can't remember exactly. White Earp was his best friend, but he's holding a grudge against the Earp family. He got a grudge against the Earp sisters. But that's not why he's still alive. It is because the witch cursed him and trapped him in a well. So he is also trapped in purgatory with all these revenants. Things turn a corner. First, Xavier and Doc are romantic rivals for Winona. But then Xavier, it turns out, is, I'll just say, a shapeshifter. Winona and Xavier's romance ends. But Doc and Winona have a David-Maddie dynamic. (laughs) Um, That's a deep cut reference. Very sexually charged, but also it's a very slow build to them being willing to admit they have affection for each other, but that doesn't stop them from having sex often. Winona gets pregnant in season two, and she and Doc have a baby together. The reason I'm mentioning this is because this is a trope that's come up before. What is the baby then? Is it a supernatural baby? Is it a half supernatural baby? Is it a zombie baby? What is it? Anyway, by season four, I can't imagine it going much longer than this because, like I said, the procedural part of it is very much baddie is introduced, Winona or someone has to dispatch them, and then move closer to throwing off the curse that's on the family. As they are bringing it in for the landing, some increasingly weird, perilous, scary events start to happen. And you do wonder, people have died along the way. Characters that we grew to care about have died along the way. So you do wonder, are they going to make it? Or is everybody going to make it out? Is It's very sweet because it's still snarky. It's still a little bit biting. But everybody does get their sort of happy ending. I just really thought it was fun. And it being only four seasons is also a good reason to recommend it. Also, at times, it is genuinely scary. When you have a good ensemble, it forgives a lot of sins. And I think that's what, besides the special effects and the one-liners and the sexiness and the spookiness of all of it, Um, it is 
just a really good tight ensemble they love each other like family they drive each other crazy like family <laughs> when one of them is in danger you want them to pull through you really are like i don't want to see harm come to any of them by the time season two rolls around you're very invested in them i remember hearing you talk about that one it sounds good and also i love her in Mother kenny So we're going to talk about reboots, but to make it germane to our Halloween conversation, we're going to call them Back from the Dead. <laughs> nice. Or reanimated. <laughs> I was yeah. trying to remember if when we were growing up, reboots were a thing. I, I know spinoffs have always been a thing, and the Once in a While reunion special was a thing. Sure. But I can't think of any reboots, and I also can't think of any reboots that I recently have been really excited to see. In fact, I've some of them I've pretended they're not happening. I didn't know there was a Frasier one until... Yep. First of all, I think that's illegal to do a spinoff <laughs> or a reboot or a reboot. Of, I don't understand what's happening there. Like, stop it. Stop it. The way that I felt about Justified, I don't want it if Walton Goggins isn't there. I don't want Frasier without Niles. Exactly. I'm sure it seemed you know, who wants Fra who wants Frasier without Sam Malone. Frasier without Sam Malone, that's a that's a character that can serve a whole world to tap away from cheers. Frasier without Niles. Yeah. All you have is the blowhard. I was really thinking hard about it because I, Will and Grace reboot was terrible gilmore girls i don't know if you liked it but i, I hated it a lot okay you hated it <laughs> veronica mars i was semi-interested in but then they did this big thing they killed off what's his bucket and they never came back queer as folk i thought i guess i can see wanting to update it's not a reboot i guess it's a remake I can see wanting to update for kids this age some of those yeah. storylines and maybe doing something different like they're doing with Belair, taking a comedy and saying, what if we made it a drama? I think that's a cool idea. Do something different. Sure. But just a reboot saying, wow, Sex in the City and just like that. As you know, I feel like a bad feminist knowing that I own these DVDs in my life and <laughs> used to watch them on repeat. I don't have any interest in the reboot because I've felt let down ever since Carrie showed big the first time. Yeah. Um, and then again in the movies, I, I just feel I don't need any more of this in my life. This disappointment. And what do you I think? I have a lot of feelings. All right. Now, I know they were very quick to defend it and say, it's not the same show, and this is afterwards, this is what happens. But the characters weren't the same characters anymore. They took Miranda, a driven, career-focused woman. She finds love. She has a child. She's a single mom. She's often not easy on the people around her, but you understand her. She is a fucking disaster in this reboot. She's a shadow of her former self. She is suddenly meek and quiet. Of course, you can change things up. You can quit your job. You can do things. Everybody does this. I've done this. You've done this. This is not what happened, though. She blew up her life in a very dramatic way. It didn't make any sense. I never loved Sex in the City. 
but I liked it. And I liked mm. seasons more than others in some episodes. I written really stick with me. The one where Carrie has to take her shoes off at a party. The shoes get stolen and her friend shames her for buying expensive shoes. And she's like, I came to your child's baby shower. I've spent $2,000 over the course of 10 years on all your children's birthdays and showers and your wedding and this. And I am getting married to myself and I'm registering for these shoes. And I think the things they did so well in Sex in the City, addressing just learning how to navigate. Now they're showing these women in their 50s, which you should be able to feel for them and relate to them. It's just so messy and also unnecessarily crude like mm-hmm. i know i told you there's a whole entire scene where they say jizz eight times <laughs> charlotte would never there's an entire show about jizz i don't think we needed that how that is a continuation of their stories in any way but i will say season two that i feel like they kind of found the footing a little better there was a lot of stuff the finale did really well and these characters began to look like what you are used to seeing like miranda was suddenly front and center being powerful and strong and taking charge in her life and her job again i understand that's what they were trying to do a lot all along but they did it in such a messy unclear way that i don't want to give the writers credit for that i don't want to be like oh i got it now good job because i think they're oh you know what we can do here this is what we'll do and also they brought Aiden back which great but they put him in the worst fucking jacket you've ever seen in your life did you read that column yes I didn't it is a horrible jacket truly I understand why they wrote a whole article about it he looked like NGB agents but you know what they did that was great is he still wore tidy whities as he always (laughs) did he always did I thought that was such a cute dorky thing they gave him he still does with what you know, which is what they fucking should have done for this show. Stick with what you know and what we loved. I do, of course, understand the appetite for these things, the excitement about maybe getting those actors back together again. There's something fun about when E.B. Newworth makes a guest appearance on Frasier. I understand yeah. those fun cultural nods, and sure, but I just yeah. I don't know that there's why wouldn't. Deborah Messing and Eric McCormick decide to do a project where they're playing husband and wife or brother and sister or different. And I didn't under this is what really bothered me about that reboot about Will and Grace is because they came back, they looked right at the camera and said the ending that we gave you for Will and Grace the original didn't happen. And they made a joke about it. I just feel if you showed these people moving on with their lives and finding partners and fulfillment in their lives separate from each other which they were so codependent it was nice to see that they grew and maybe they had their old madcap ways but they are old now and their kids now are you guys are crazy i would have appreciated that instead of a whole freaking episode about grace clogging a toilet at somebody's house it cheapens what there was to begin yeah yeah it makes it less less special which is yeah exactly how like sure ended the good place by saying too much of a good thing is a bad thing even if that good thing is heaven are you ready for lovecraft country i am ready to hear about it okay so the show that i would like to rewrite the ending for was lovecraft country this was um, a show that ran on HBO for just one season, August to October of 2020. 
It was developed for TV by Misha Green based on a book called Love, Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff. It was executive produced by Jordan Peele, J.J. Abrams, and David Knoller. And Misha Green is also the showrunner. It stars Jonathan Majors, Journey Smollett, Anjanou Ellis, Courtney B. Vance, and the late great Michael K. Williams. This is a lot. The show is a lot of things. It's supernatural, sci-fi, fantasy, time travel, horror, historical drama. It's set in a segregated 1950s America where you don't know who the scarier monsters are, the racists, or the literal otherworldly creatures and monsters, both of which put them in immense danger. It's a fucking toss up. I didn't know this reference prior to watching the show. Maybe you did, but H.P. Lovecraft was an American science fiction fantasy horror writer who was active in the mid to late 1900s. He was also an equal opportunity bigot and white supremacist. Um, his beliefs often came through in his writing, and the show is an acknowledgement of that. The main character is a big sci-fi fan, and many people in his family are as well. But it's an acknowledgement that not just the monsters and super natural aspects of his novels, but all of his books take place in a fictional area of New England. The title is a nod to the physical places the characters go that are unsafe for them, like the sundown towns in New England or much of the South. The premise is this follows Atticus Tick Freeman. He's a recently returned Korean War vet who goes on a harrowing cross-country road trip to find his estranged father, Montrose, who is played by Michael K. Williams, who has gone missing. So he takes this journey with his childhood friend and eventual love interest, Letitia Letty Lewis, and his uncle George, who is a writer and publisher of a safe travel guide for African-Americans, much like the Green Book. Once these travelers make it to Lovecraft Country, which is, again, a fictional place somewhere in New England, they find themselves caught up in Tick's creepy ancestry, which involves a supernatural birthright and this racist white family he is descended from named the Brace Whites who have practiced this kind of occult magic for generations. Christina Braithwaite is the lone daughter of this family, and she spends most of this season trying to get Tick's magic blood, which is one piece of a sort of mystical scavenger hunt that everyone is a part of. One of the pieces of the puzzle is something called the Book of Names, which is a spell book that started with a woman named Hannah, who is Tick's enslaved ancestor. She cast a binding spell on this book to protect future generations from the dark magic that's inside. Um, the Book of Names is thought to have been lost at some point during the Tulsa Race Massacre. So there's a whole episode where Tick and Letty and Montrose travel back in time to get the book. That episode is, it's a good episode, but it's heavy. There's a lot of special effects that are amazing. There's a lot of scary creatures. There is some grisly horror. Sometimes the show felt a little uneven, a little all over the place, but I think it's worth hanging in there because the mythology they created for this family that goes back over generations and how they become heroes despite all the things they go through is triumphant. I think it was a remarkable show. It was just so many genres. It was aesthetically beautiful, not just how they recreated an era, but how it was filmed with saturated colors and the lighting. I read that that was inspired by Gordon Park's photography. Special effects were fantastic. Season one ends with a final battle between good and evil. Everyone in Atticus's circle comes together at the end to try to save them and the family and future generations. But Christina, the sorceress, uses 
this ritual sacrifice to kill him and drain his blood and harness his magic. He sacrifices himself to save Letty and the rest of his family. He becomes a martyr. That's not how the book ended. The book, he survives everything. And I felt like that character had been through so much. He'd been a, he was a veteran in a war. They would had so many battles with monsters and cops and ghosts and only to die in the end when he survived the whole entirety of the book. It just felt, it, it felt, it was frustrating. My rewrite would be that he lives. The whole show was a fight for power. I had to take this power away from these, from these people in this family. I wish that he would have been able to hold on to that power. There were so many people who could have helped him and intervened, and I didn't understand why they had to kill him off. I think the choice to kill off the hero and the protagonist is so strange because the whole story ends. At the time the show ended, it was nominated for 14 Emmys. They knew they were coming back until they weren't coming back. They had a season two in development. Was, was the part of this War Warner Brothers Discovery HBO Max fuck up? It might be. I read that it was possible because it was too expensive to keep going because of all the special effects. I also read that they felt like they ran out of track and that they, because they left the novel and they went off on their own, that maybe they felt like that was enough. This did happen during 2020, but it was done filming. I, I don't have a grand idea. I just would not have, I wouldn't have had him die. Perhaps the second season brought him back or another version of him or a parallel universe of him but we'll never know that if the plan had been to come and tell a new story in the second season anyway i wonder what made them decide to change the ending my favorite thing to do is go to the reddit thread so i can get some validation for my feelings yeah. and people are like hey did that ending people were watching it they were into it and i think for the performance of the loan they're so strong it was one of the last things that michael k williams was in Courtney B. Vance is very funny. He's the levity in a dark show. This personal crap with Jonathan Majors hadn't had started yet either. Oh, I don't exactly. think. Occam's Razor, Simple Racism, maybe just because Them was another one. Only went one season. The Underground Railroad. The other one only went one season. There was The Watchmen as well. And it's disappointing. What's your recommendation? I chose something that's scary because it is something we're watching, but because it is the Halloween episode, I want to talk about The Changeling. This is a new show on Apple TV. It premiered in September. There's just been one season so far. It stars Lakeith Stanfield, Adina Porter, Clark Bacco. It's based on a book of the same name by Victor Laval, uh, and which won a bunch of fantasy writing awards. Victor Laval is also the narrator on the show. It was written for TV by Kelly Marcel, who is also the showrunner. It is a horror fantasy about a young couple named Apollo and Emma, played by Lakeith Stanfield and Clark Bacco, who are recently married with a baby. Emma is dealing with postpartum depression, and she is convinced that the baby is not hers, that it's not a real baby, and it's something that's left behind after her own baby was kidnapped by a demon. And she doesn't just come up with this, she believes this because. She gets involved with a, an online forum of mothers who are recently, who just had babies, who are going through similar stuff. She also becomes very paranoid and, and somebody is sending her text messages with photos of her where they are clearly watching her and her family. They'll send her a text message and then the photo will disappear. So she goes down the rabbit hole in this mom forum 
and she finds other people who are dealing with similar stuff. There's an uncertainty about what is real, what's possibly just in her head. Apollo doesn't believe her until something truly monstrous happens and she disappears. The baby disappears. And then he spends most of the season trying to find her and figure out what happened. It is a scary show. Um, scary. There's a kind of a greater theme of fairy tales turning into nightmares. There's a lot of conversations about like, generational trauma. Uh, the, the show is set in Manhattan, um, but parts of the story also take place in Uganda and Brazil to build the origin stories of Apollo and Emma and their families. There's a lot of little pieces to pull together. There's like, magical folklore and possibly witches and demons and fairies. They tell these stories across various decades. There's also a lot of stories about women not being heard or believed or supported. Childhood trauma and memories and how we change memories in our head. There's an episode near the end of the first season called Stormy Weather that is just a real mindfuck. Again, you're not sure if what's happening is real or someone's memory. The time period changes multiple times, but it's sad and beautiful. It's one of those times where you go, wow, I have not seen anything quite like that on television before. So I keep thinking about this show many weeks after I've watched it. I love the creepy lore that it builds and the performances are heartbreaking and wonderful. I think if you're looking for something spooky and dark to watch this time of year, it's a really good choice. Okay. You sold me. I'm going to, we're putting pause on Follow the House of Usher and we're going to okay. move to that one because okay. that sounds just exactly what I want to see. I did go with a deep cut, The Munsters, streaming on Peacock right now. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about it was not just because it's fun, but some of the circumstances <laughs> with the show very much connect with the actor strike. Mm. Because when I went to start investigating, I thought, gosh, there are a lot of episodes. I wonder how many years The Munsters was on the air. When I tell you, that they had two seasons. How many episodes do you think they had if they had two seasons of television? I don't know, like 15 each? 70 fucking episodes. Wow. That's total for two seasons. For two seasons. The first season was 38 episodes. The second season was 32 episodes. Fred Gwynn, the wonderful Herman Munster, was classically trained. He started in Shakespeare. On the Waterfront was his first film. He had five <laughs> kids. Two of his kids predeceased them. One of them drowned as a toddler just a few months before the Munsters started filming. Awful. Now he is a very big man. He was 6'8". Wow. But he had to wear these platform shoes. He had a lot of physical gags that he had to do because of his size. I, all I could think was he had to have had some pain. What kind of protections did he have? Even if they did have stunt performers... Were those stunt performers also injured? That's why we have unions, exactly. Yeah. What do they call it? Practical effects? Then it was all practical effects. And yeah. The payoff was great, but yeah, we don't need anyone physically putting themselves in danger for our entertainment. This isn't fucking Rome. Yvonne DiCarlo is one of those actors who, when you start to read her history... She was a classic starlet. She played Salome. She had all the classic leading men, Clark Gable, Burt Lancaster. She had romances with Howard Hughes, and she dated a prince. Her first husband cheated on her with Sally Field's mom. It was the story. 
Oh, the reason I'm giving you this backstory is by the time she comes to the Munsters, she's almost broke. And one of the things she says is she has, this gives her a steady paycheck. So what the actors are striking for is to not go back that Hollywood. <laughs> I was excited for Rob Zombie's adaptation for Netflix, which ended up being a wet fart, but beautiful to look at. Yeah. He got all of the visual stuff, costumes, makeup, sets, all of that. So well done. So I have a lot of warm, happy feelings associated with this show. I had this cast of misfit who all thought they were attractive and wonderful and expected the best from everybody, treated everyone well, and it's just a lovely, warm, silly show. As warm and nostalgic as our feelings can be around certain things, we also have to remember what went into making them. That's one of Josh's favorite shows. Out there in the fall, we watched that. And then he was excited about watching the movie, which I think he too was disappointed by. But I think that's why he goes back to it. And it's his comfort show because it's there's a kindness to it. And there's nothing terrible truly ever happens. It's just right. sweet. So it was created by Alan Burns, who was best known for the Mary Tyler Moore show. Prior to the Monsters, he was an animator and he created the Captain Crunch character. And he was a mentor to James L. Brooks, which kind of now makes sense why James L. Brooks came to The Simpsons because mentored by an animation guy. Chris Hayward created Dudley Do-Right. He also wrote for Rocky and Bullwinkle, Alice, Barney Miller, Get Smart, among others. Craig Gwynn, as I mentioned, before this series, his starring show was Car 54, Where Are You? Which I remember watching on Nick at Night. And Al Lewis, actually, who played Grandpa, also starred on Car 54, so they got to work together again. Yvonne DiCarlo played Lily. She said she was told on day one, play her just like Donna Reed. She <laughs> said she never strayed from that direction. Beverly Owen played Marilyn, and I don't know why she left the show, but Pat Priest came in and replaced her. Butch Patrick played Eddie. And it was produced for Cairo View Productions for Universal Television, originally released on CBS from September 1964 to May 1966. And again, 70 episodes in that amount of time. It is streaming on Peacock and it's one you can watch with your family at Halloween time. Also, the, the fun fact that I found out was that the paint that Fred Gwynn had on his face was actually blue, not green. Mm. It looked, it made it show up on the, anyway. Today, I'm coming from the ancestral lands of the Chira, and you are coming to us from the ancestral lands of the Ohlone. So not only is October Indigenous Heritage Month, but it marks the beginning of this portion of the year. We're wrestling with this conversation between the true facts of our history versus that is storytelling in an effort to create a mythology about how our country was founded around Standing Rock. A lot of people were talking about propatriation. If you don't know what else to do or 
you're not in a position to do something big, you can always give money. So I started to look for indigenous activist groups. And one that I found that has done a lot of great work is called the American Indian College Fund, their website, collegefund.org. And their purpose is, I'm going to read this from the site, we have one unwavering purpose, increasing the number of American Indians who hold college degrees. Currently, only 15% of American Indians have a college degree, less than half the national average. Every year, we empower more than 4,000 American Indian students to start and stay in school, complete their degrees, and launch careers that benefit us all. We have provided 159,652 scholarships and $283.7 million to support American Indian communities. We intend to double our impact in the next five years. Join us and help a student today. AICF is the largest scholarship resource for Indigenous students, and it is a good charity to kick some cash to. If you have some, collegefund.org or on Instagram at Insta College Fund. Also, I'll let Melissa explain, if you don't know already, what ancestral land you reside on. The um, website's native dash land.ca and find out what indigenous land you currently live on had it not been colonized from there you can find out um you can find organizations that support rematriating the land and you can find out what your possible land tax might be which is something that i do um locally through the uh the ohlone land that i live on we hope you enjoyed the episode share your endings with us at recconnection.com or on instagram at Rec Connection.